Talking industry, topical debate from the world of engineering, automation, and manufacturing. A DFA manufacturing media production. Energy efficiency at net zero. Part three. Brought to you by Smart Futures. The latest news from the only online portal dedicated to the future of digitalization. Visit smartfutures.org.uk. So we must go back to Chris now and speak um, more specifically about compressed air and leak detection. And I think we've already identified it as um, as a major issue. So uh, so over to you, Chris, for some more information on it. Yeah, and I'll add a few other things and different application areas as well to that. It's not just compressed air, but uh, UE Systems as a manufacturer of ultrasound equipment, test equipment that we supply to all industries, um, primarily for improving reliability, condition monitoring of their assets to obviously predict potential failures before they become a problem, um, keeping the availability and uptime of their uh, production lines and things like that, but also on the energy saving side. I, I was at an event uh, last week, a reliability event, and normally I do the same event every year, pre-COVID and things like that, and we deal with a whole raft of different application areas for uses of this. And I would say last week, 70% of all the people that came to me from different companies from around the UK came to me with the same topic. Chris, we need to improve our energy efficiencies. We need to reduce our energy costs because of the sheer rise in, in the cost of energy, for example. Now, I did a webinar uh, a few years ago now on energy savings using looking at compressed air systems alone, for example. Um, and there were some key facts there that, you know, industry was spending over a billion pounds a year just to compress air. Um, but that was then based on an average of 10 pence per kilowatt hour. And I've got customers now that were paying below that a few years ago and are now paying over 20 pence per kilowatt hour. Um, I've been surveying quite a few different industries about, you know, what's the average cost these days. And we're seeing it in the mid 20 pence per kilowatt hours. So the costs are going extortionately high. And of course, if we're looking for these drives to sort of like make these improvements that come with a cost, they need to get on top of these energy efficiencies to be able to free that capital, to be able to do these things. Um, and it's one of those areas that people aren't aware of actually how much things like compressed air cost. Um, and if you think about traditionally on a site, you will actually find that some sites will have leakage rates of anywhere between 30 to 50% on some sites. And again, it's just something that they might be used to hearing when they walk through mm. a plant. Oh, that noise isn't a leak. That's been there ever since I was here six, seven years ago. It's just the, no the normal sort of thing. And all it turns out to be is a little tighten of a thread and that leak's gone, uh, for example. But we use the ultrasound, you know, to perform surveys. Well, our users do anyway. And then using that technology, they can identify these leaks and quantify them and show them as a cost saving, but also looking at the energy wastage and what that has in effect as a carbon emission. Um, and every few years, it used to go through different waves about how much can I save um, on energy. But then it's a case of we get the questions now of, well, how much can we reduce our carbon footprint with this? Because, again, our reports should utilize to show those sort of savings as well. But on the other side, a lot of manufacturing, especially food, food industry, for example, use a lot of steam. Um, and steam is an extremely expensive uh, commodity. Now, that's always normally powered by gas 
um, and you look at the steam systems and the way they operate, they have steam traps that are in their system that are designed to obviously reduce condensate, hold back the steam and keep things running as efficiently as possible. But one faulty steam trap could cost a company over £2,000 a year. That was before the price of energy was going up. Now, the cost to generate a ton of steam um, pre-COVID, you could say, was anywhere between 20 and £30 uh, per ton of steam. What I've been hearing some, from some users these days is actually that value now is above £60 to generate a ton of steam. And these things are running 24-7 normally. People are afraid to turn them off because once they cool down and then they heat up, it causes problems with obviously the reliability of those things. So, you know, by doing simple surveys of steam traps to look at the condition, they can identify quick savings there as well. Um, and, you know, I've had customers where they've utilized an ultrasound device the first six months, done some surveys, identified £90,000 uh, a year worth of losses in energy. Um, and most of these things can be repaired quite simple on the spot half the time as well. You know, loose fittings, poor connections, just simple ways in which to actually improve those energy efficiencies. And when we look at the lifespan of a compressor over, say, a 10 year period, 75% of the cost is down to energy usage. And as, as Will was saying, you know, there's leaks everywhere. People just don't realize that they're there. Um, and with that cost of energy, it's just throwing money away for no reason. You know, it's something we can get on top of. Um, so, yeah, and I'm seeing that now. We're seeing that in industry a lot more. People are um, being more aware now, which is quite good. There was a definite lack of awareness when I first started doing this many years ago. Um, but now people can appreciate it, which is really, really good. So, yeah, simple in industry with manufacturing is looking at compressed air systems, compressed gases, which are also very expensive these days. And then looking at your steam systems just by, you know, utilizing simple technology to help you go out and identify these things can have a big impact on your business because you get your energy bill. It doesn't tell you that 30 percent of that energy bill was through your compressed air leaks. You just know you have a big bill, um, you know. So if you can then use these technologies to identify that, it's quick wins. It's easy ways of doing stuff that isn't going to cost you much in, 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 you know, in products or tools and time. You can do these things quite quickly. Can you tell me a little bit about why ultrasound? I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious, but are there alternatives? And Well, with, with, with ultrasound, the way we look at this is that um, ultrasound is generated uh, via turbulent flow. So you think about a pressurized system that would, if you have a leak, you'll have turbulence. Now you will have leaks that you can't hear because they're, they're quite small. Um, and with ultrasound, you'll be able to identify them because we're picking up turbulence that we can't hear. And even on a big leak, audible sound is omnidirectional. So it travels in all directions. So you might get an idea there's a leak over here somewhere, but I don't know exactly where it is. Ultrasound is very directional. So as you point a device towards the leak, you hear it as you move away, you lose it again. And you can use that in a noisy environment because the noisy environment is audible noise. We're listening way beyond what we can audibly hear with these, this technology. So it's very simple, very easy. Um, and it's again, it's kind of like heightening your senses almost. You put some headphones on, you have a, a pistol or a type of ultrasound device and you just scan the environment, listening for what sounds like a leak. And then you can identify them very quickly. And it's the same for steam systems. Steam systems, the way the steam traps work is turbulent flow as it moves the condensate through the trap. And you can listen with a stethoscope on the outlet of the trap just to listen to that steam trap cycling, opening and closing. 
And when a steam trap normally fails, it normally fails in the open position. So you can hear that turbulence constant. So we know that we're losing that steam, that really expensive commodity. Um, so we can identify the condition. Um, so it's quite methodical in that, in that respect and quite simple to use as well, because you give somebody that's untrained one of these devices, and it's like a bunch of school kids. I see them all wandering off in different directions and saying, I've found something, I've found something. You know, then they then start playing a game as to who can find the, the biggest amount of leaks and costs and things like that. Um, I think the biggest leak to date, I think we've identified was a helium leak that was costing the company uh, £250,000 a year. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite something. And all it was was a simple union <laughs> adjustment. And that was it. So, yeah, there's big wins to be had. It could be quite simple. It doesn't make, take too much effort. Chris, That's the key thing. What about rotary equipment condition monitoring? Has that, um, has that got a, a benefit? Or? Yeah, there can be some of that because friction's also generate, friction also generates ultrasound. So you think about motors, bearings, gearboxes, things like that. You can also measure the friction levels of assets and you can utilize ultrasound to loop, keep the lubrication at its optimal level. Because again, if you have a reduction in lubrication levels, then there's going to be a higher energy requirement on that system to keep it rotating. So you can have you know, marginal gains as well there with energy efficiencies by making sure that the lubrication is adequate, correct, and things like that. And of course, you want these assets to last as long as possible. You, know, you want to keep them healthy for longer periods. So if you can utilize condition monitoring technologies to keep the health of that asset longer for a longer period, then again, you're going to not require as many replacement assets, which again is going to in turn reduce the bigger carbon picture as well. Okay. I think that you know the common theme and perhaps the most extreme example of it was was Chris and his um, compressed air leaks, but especially the helium one. Um, <clears throat> but there's there's financial benefit. It's not just saving energy per se, but the financial benefits are enormous. So you know we we really do need to push as many people in that direction as we can for their own benefit you know it's um payback periods are getting shorter as we've said um one of the themes that we've kind of touched on but perhaps not specifically covered is um is the issue of data gathering you know it's uh, easier and easier to gather data on uh, on equipment these days and um I'm I'm a, a, an avid reader of a blogger in the US called Seth Godin, and it's not much effort because most of his comments are about a sentence or two every day, and they can be quite interesting. But he said recently, a couple of days ago, data is everywhere, but turning it into information takes focus, effort, consultation, and time. And more information is only useful if it helps you make a decision. Um, I wonder if anybody fancies commenting on that because you know there is the fear of data overload as well um, because we have so much this talking industry episode is brought to you by smart futures the latest news from the only online portal dedicated to the future of digitalization visit smartfutures.org.uk yeah it's, it's so easy to do isn't it it's you can be we made the mistake of we, we worked on a project years ago where the machines could tell us loads of stuff that told us so much stuff that gave us a headache and we didn't you know we didn't make any decision from it and actually we, we went back to the drawing board and said what do we really want to know and we were like we just want to know the, whether the machine is on or off so we ended up building our own technology in-house some little circuit boards that 
monitored the status lights because actually the real value was knowing is the machine running or not so we could work out the cycle time the load time the overall efficiency of the machine we didn't need to know if what speed the spindle was going or any of these things and, and what we've done now talking to chris's point is we said we've used this date overarching data by factory to make these great savings we, we've got these little sensors that tell us whether the machines are running or not but now we're just putting a ct clamp into them so we can actually look at how much power each machine is using because we've got this big lump of power and now we want to go right actually where is our 80 20 where's the all oh, right those two machines are the ones that really so we're just but really granted because they said oh this will only give us accuracy within five percent i said that's fine that's more than good enough i'm not trying to measure anything i'm just trying to sort of hotspot which is the important areas for us to look at so i think yeah we, we must get the right data and i think for me and marie might slightly disagree with this automated data collection is much more reliable than human data collection because the humans are busy doing what the humans are good at adding engineering value being creative not recording the cycle time of the machine you know we've had a lot more accuracy once we've been able to do that you know externally well external of the person oh i, I do agree i just think you need to look at the life cycle and all the bits of kit to do it yes yes yeah, so I think, you know, if you look at just um, gathering data on a typical drive system, the if you've got a drive there, you've got a motor, the amount of information that's in that drive about what that motor and the mechanical system is doing is enormous. And if you just expose that to, every, you know, expose it all to everybody, then there's actually very little value in it. The value comes from understanding, characterizing that system and identifying when it goes out of that characterization. And that's what the you know, ABB Ability Cloud does, and it's continuous monitoring, you know, 24-7. Mm. Um, Gareth, do you see it also, where I was talking to one of the big manufacturers about sharing data? Lots of companies are like, oh, I don't want to share anything. It's my city, like they're making space rockets. No one's that interested. But actually, like, if you've got industrial machines and you can share your data and benchmark yourselves against other bit and go, how come Warren's using 10% more power to do the same work as someone else? You know, that, that there's a real value in that, that sharing, letting someone like ABB look at it where I can't understand it. But if ABB have got a thousand of these and go, Will, you really need to turn parameter 22 down, you can add more value to your customer as well. Yeah, I think you've raised absolutely brilliant point, Will, because people are paranoid about, you know, who owns data and where it goes and what it's used for. Um, actually, we've taken an approach where the customer owns that data, you know, in this sense, um, because of that, that, and actually, you know, the systems that we have are, are unidirectional, so they, they'll send information up to the cloud, but they won't have information back. We, we can have it, we can change that, mm. you know, if there's a separate system to do that. And the reason for that is that people are worried about security and, you know, people being able to influence their processes. Um, so actually, you know, the adapt the adoption of these systems is kind of key really in making sure that people feel comfortable with having these on their sites, you know, that the data has been used for them, you know, by them, it's their data, it's key yeah. really. I think people get the same thing with cloud computing. You know, we did the analysis from a cost, from a carbon point of view of having our, most of our servers in the cloud, it's much, much more carbon efficient to have them in the cloud because 
they've they're, they're, we were air conditioning one room for one, two servers yeah. and, they, you know, and the cost was miles and people are like oh yeah i don't want my data i'm like i think microsoft security is probably better or amazon security better than warren services like security yeah. system we've got so, yeah I, I and the and the more you can share you know but, no one cares what my laser cutting machine is doing you know but, like, but it I will think, add value you know, to me so the idea of this energy efficiency movement, you know, it's going to it's going to morph. It's starting off at the moment, you know, it's, it's in its infancy. But the whole idea of this is that it links you with other people who are doing laser cutting. Yeah. You know, and you're able to have those conversations and develop solutions that help your industry, you know, to cut carbon. Mm. So, so, you know, that's the direction I want to go on to, you know, create, be able to create clusters of people who have got the same goal. Yeah. And maybe like create some competition and also... That like I was, I'm going to talk to Maria get about Pat. We're not we're not not Paz 2060 at the moment. We're doing it ourselves. But it's the accountability of lots of these CEOs get up and go. We're going to be carbon neutral by so and so. And you're like you're not going to be in that job. Poor old Will is because it's my company. <laughs> so I've got to deliver on it. Someone will tell me in five years time. You said you were going to do this, and now you're still there. But it's yeah. the data and accountability. You know, to get away from this greenwashing of you know actually exposing what we're really doing i think will be valuable to get us to zero yeah and another point you raised well was you know how how do we help our customers to make sure that what they're doing is is the best it can be for that motor drive system you know we'll, if you've got a large motor and you want us to come and have a look at it we'll quite happily come take a look at that and make recommendations is it running as efficiently as you know as it can has it got the best technology is there any payback to introducing some new technology um you know so we're quite happy to, to do that and in in the long term the services you know lifetime services to make sure that that continues to run as efficiently as it can but speaking more broadly about the role of maintenance within manufacturing and its vital importance to sustainability what could the industry do to talk up and value this career path more i think it's about looking at improved reliability um in a way moving away from you know just doing what we call reactive maintenance traditionally back in the days, um, you know, waiting around, sitting around, just waiting for them to, to fail and then reacting to that. Um, maintenance these days is changing dramatically. Um, and you're almost splitting maintenance now into two areas, your, your maintenance teams and your reliability teams and your reliability teams that are performing, you know, diagnostics inspections, collecting specific data to trend and identify potential issues in the making and from that data then passing that, that information to maintenance to then do maybe scheduled downtime and scheduled um, works that isn't going to impact on production and if we can keep again our assets and health to the highest um, possible health of itself keep it running for longer then we're going to have you know less demand on vendors and other manufacturers to bring these other things in all the time, reducing that carbon footprint. So it's becoming more, maintenance is becoming smarter, I would say. And that's, yeah. that's a good, that should be a good um, encouragement thing for people looking to get into the sector. And, and also the move from, we're, we're very much a prevent, preventative maintenance business. So we service everything every six months or every three months, depending on what it is. And you, you think, well, we must be wasting a lot of time and money maintaining things that don't really need maintaining, you yeah. know, because we need reliability. But actually, with correct sensing and understanding of the data and maybe 
our data set is too small. And that's what I was trying to get at earlier. It's like Warren's only got 50 machines or whatever. It, you know, actually, if we were part of a bigger network, they go, actually, if you've done this, this, and this, and the manufacturer can see it, you could leave that until you get to this threshold. Well, we haven't got enough equipment to work that out as such. So I think this whole community and sharing thing is the way we will get further forward. Yeah, and, and to add to that, Will, as well, you know, we see a lot of people doing time-based maintenance, for example. And I, from my background as an electrical engineer, the amount of times that I performed a time-based maintenance schedule on something, everything was fine. Uh, I would run the system down, do the maintenance that was required of it, run it back up, and 10 minutes later it fails. Question is, would it have failed if I actually had done that service? And did that asset require that service at that time, mm. uh, if that makes sense? And, and that's where maintenance is starting to move forward a lot more now um, is to go, right, well, based on these conditions and these this data parameters, this asset requires this, for example. We use ultrasound to take baseline readings at the friction levels of the grease in a bearing. Now, time-based lubrication programs will say you'll put X amount of grease in this often. But then if you're using a device to then check that friction level and it comes to that period where you're supposed to grease again and the friction level hasn't changed that bearing is telling me hey i've got enough grease already but if you do a time-based approach you're going to throw mm. more grease in that bearing mm. regardless um if that makes sense so it's what's it's yeah. exactly what's happened to cars isn't it you know where yeah. your car used to be serviced every ten thousand miles or one year and now the car tells you when it wants servicing and that's yeah. you know the direction the technology is going mm. Very much so. Well, I think that takes us to what my last question would be. And we touched on um, plastics being given a bad name, but, but amongst many um, advocates in the general community of net zero concepts, unfortunately, manufacturing gets a bad name too, probably totally unjustifiably in most cases. Um, but, you know, we've seen from Gareth's initiative, and, and I think we're all very supportive of, of that, that it's actually industry that's driving an awful lot of the innovation that can solve this problem. So um, I was going to ask all of our panellists, really, do, do you think that net zero is actually too important to be left to government? Um, and, and maybe we should just be getting on with it because they're, they're only interested in short-term election issues and um well sadly in some cases blowing up the neighbors but but perhaps it's industry you know internationally that that have really got the role to play it's already happening andy mm. like like aaron said it's the customer that the customer as yeah. in the c the customer the consumer is starting to demand it and then nestle and coca-cola are going to start demanding it it's we need government to do stuff but it's not going to be they're just too slow. You know, they can't, you know, they always seem to get it wrong, but then you think it is a big thing they've got to do. So, you know, I only do my little business, you know, my little thing. They've got like this big, massive, I can't imagine what it must be like, but I think, yeah, we're, we're going to be driven by our in consumers and in industry and our, our customers, I believe. And workforce, as somebody pointed out earlier as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very good yeah. point. So I, I agree. Of, uh, sorry, go, on, go for it, Chris. Uh, two things that you don't normally talk about: uh, religion and politics. So we're not going <laughs> to leave that to one side for now, and that side of things. But you know, government are there to obviously help put in regulations and standardisation. 
But as we, as Will was saying, we're already seeing this um, from you know industry itself, end users saying we require this, this, and this, but we would like to see these parameters met as part of that. And then the the supply chain then has to meet that requirement. Um, so we are seeing that move already. I think you know we the more people that get involved with it, the more industry get involved with it, the quicker and easier it might make it for government to then be able to put through legislation. I think if that's the case, because they can see it's being done. Yeah. Very good point, Gareth. So, yeah, so I, I think since the government really to create an environment where people can, it helps people to make the investments that do the right thing. And um, I think they're trying to do that, but um, I think it'll get driven by by people, by industry, and, um, you know, the initiatives that we've talked about today. Excellent. And I'm sure that we would love to be part of promoting your initiative in whichever way we can so we must talk about that as well marie did Fantastic. you want the last word oh, I, I firmly believe we will see it pushed through through consumers workforce etc i where i think uh, government comes in is making ensure that it's done in the right way making it harder to do things like greenwashing and stuff like that so for example, the energy industry currently, uh, you can say a tariff is uh, fully renewable if you have enough uh, regos or generation certificates. At the moment, you can trade those. So you could have got them from anywhere or you could have got them direct from uh, someone who is generating renewables. So I'm asking that when we go to a fully renewable tariff, that it is backed by regos that are uh, direct from the generator to put, uh, prevent that greenwashing. Now, government is actually looking at that one, but that's kind of the place where they, they hopefully will help us guide how we should play. But I think we're going to be driving um, the play. Excellent. Well, let's let's leave it there. And thank you very much to all of our panelists and for their excellent contributions this morning. I'm sure we could go on forever, but I think we've covered a lot of aspects of, of the topic in this one. And thank you for everyone who's attended. Um, if you want to hear it again, it will be uh, produced as a video. And increasingly, we're doing podcasting as well. And uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people who signed up couldn't make it today. We will promote the um, the uh, video version, the on-demand video for them to, to see it as well. Um, so once again, thank you very much for all panellists. A virtual round of applause to everybody. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. This Talking Industry episode is brought to you by Smart Futures, the latest news from the only online portal dedicated to the future of digitalization. Visit smartfutures.org.uk. Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. Stay tuned across all podcast apps, follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletters, and keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.